Saturday, April 30th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden wants a big commitment for Ukraine. And it begins it begins the transition to longer-term security systems. That's going to help Ukraine deter and continue to defend against Russian aggression. And is the top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, poised to become speaker? Wouldn't take much for the former president maybe to uh, undercut Kevin McCarthy. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Ukraine is digging in for a long fight with Russia, and it's clear the Pentagon and NATO allies are preparing as well. This week, President Biden sent Congress a request for $33 billion for Ukraine. Most of that $20 billion is for weapons, the kind of artillery needed for a slog in eastern Ukraine. This so-called supplemental funding addresses the needs of the Ukrainian military during the critical weeks and months ahead. And it begins, it begins the transition to longer-term security systems that's going to help Ukraine deter and continue to defend against Russian aggression. The $20 billion in military assistance is a significant step up in the U.S. commitment to Ukraine. Consider, up to this point, just a little more than $3 billion in security assistance has been okayed by Congress. Also in this request, $8.5 billion in economic assistance so the government in Kyiv can keep operating and pay its bills. And the U.S. is not alone. Germany has started sending weaponry like anti-tank systems and anti-aircraft capabilities. Diplomatic missions are also reopening. The U.S. is beginning to operate embassy services in Ukraine once more. And the Senate is expected to soon consider President Biden's nominee for Ukraine ambassador, Bridget Brink. I spoke about that diplomatic mission with someone who knows it well. Ambassador William Taylor was the U.S. representative in Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. And then again during the Trump administration in 2019. Let me ask sort of about the the sustainability Um this is looking more and more like it's going to be a prolonged conflict, particularly in the eastern part of, of Ukraine, in the Donbass and in, in that area. Is there a resolve here that, that you're worried about? Do you worry that is maybe this doesn't uh, stay on the front pages of the newspapers as this sort of drags on into a, a longer conflict that some of these sanctions, some of the resolve that we've seen from NATO and non-NATO countries in the transatlantic alliance uh, is in jeopardy? I mean, can, can this go on indefinitely? Of course, it can't go on indefinitely. Um, and of course, um, there's going to be there, there's going to need to be a big effort to sustain this support for Ukraine and sustain this pressure on the Russians for as long as it takes. You're right. It might it might not be over immediately, in which case that pressure on the Russians and the support for Ukraine needs to be maintained. And it's going to be harder and harder because sanctions um, by definition, um, get in the way of or in, impede normal market interactions. And so the sanctions definitely have an upward pressure on price uh, prices that, that, that we see. And of course, the Russians pay the bulk of these prices, but other nations, including the United States, in particular Europeans, um, are, are, are paying a higher price for a lot of things as well. So, so maintaining that, which, in my view, um, uh, is important to do. To maintain the pressure on the Russians and support for Ukraine is important to do. And it, you're right; it will take 
It'll take a sustained effort and leadership on the part of the Biden administration, but also on the part of Congress. I mean, Congress mm -hmm. has been uh, reflect, reflecting, you know, the views of the American people um, and the American people have been very supportive. And so all of that, the American people, the Congress and the Biden administration are going to be are going to need to maintain, you know, to work to maintain that focus. What do you think of Secretary Blinken and um, Secretary Austin making a, a quasi secret trip, I guess, to Kiev? Your quasi secret is right because <laughs> I think the Ukrainians maybe let it slip. <laughs> the day before, exactly. Uh, but uh, but to answer your question, I was very glad to see it. I was very glad to see that the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense uh, showing up in Kiev uh, to have direct conversations, long, serious, substantive conversations with President Zelensky um, and with their counterparts, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of Defense, both of whom are, uh, I, I know reasonably well, um, uh, and both of them are serious people. And so to have that direct face-to-face -face conversation um, with the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, I think was was very important. Um, and th they, uh, it was not just symbolic, it wasn't just conversations. I mean, they they agreed on, on the continued flow of certain kinds of weapons and the mm -hmm. continued pressure, going back to what you and I were just talking about, uh, continued sanctions um, and probably so I don't know this, but probably some conversations about reconstruction and, and about uh, the maintenance of sanctions and even the use of some of these uh, uh, frozen uh, assets uh, to to fund the reconstruction. What do you know about Bridget Brink, the named uh, she'll be nominated ambassador to Ukraine? So I don't know her well. Um, I know her by reputation, which is very good. Um, mm -hmm. We all know we've done we've we've done the research. We know that she's an expert in the region. She's been um, a diplomat uh, in the in the post-Soviet region. Uh, have served in a couple of a uh, uh, couple of embassies there. Most recently, of course, the, the our ambassador to Slovakia, um, and of course, Slovakia borders Ukraine, and and so she's been part of of all of those conversations and she'll, she will clearly hit the ground running. Uh, as, as I say, a great reputation um, uh, in, the, in the administration, um, in the State Department um, and among uh, diplomats. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a good choice, great choice. Do you have any concerns about having diplomats, having a U.S. diplomatic presence back in Ukraine right now? Not at all. I think uh, the sooner the better. Um, and I know that the, I've talked to some of the uh, current dip diplomats, and they're eager to get back uh, for all the reasons that, that you and I just talked about, Jared. That is uh, the importance of kind of face-to-face -face conversations on a regular basis. Um, uh, you can do that when your embassy is in Kiev. You can't do that when your embassy is in Poland. Um, um, and, and so, yeah, the, the diplomats are eager to get back. Um, I, I haven't talked to Bridget yet, to Ambassador uh, Brick yet. Um, I intend to talk to her next week when she gets back. Um, but um, she is uh, she's undoubtedly eager to be in Kiev. But you don't have safety concerns or security concerns about an embassy in Kiev uh, as Ukraine is, is still in the midst of this war. So so the uh, uh, the 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 job of the secretary of state and, and his security people, uh, the job is to be sure, many jobs, one of the important jobs is to take care of, of the diplomat, take care of the embassy, take care of the, of the other support functions in the embassy, take care of the, of the many 
great Ukrainian to work in the embassy. So, so yes, uh, that's an important consideration, the safety consideration. That said, um, the Ukrainian military has been has been successful um, in pushing, as we know, pushing the Russians <laughs> away from Kiev, back into Belarus and back into Russia. Um, and, and there's no immediate ground threat, as there was before, um, uh, to Kiev from the from the Russian military. So that's that's not there. There is clear, as you say, there's still a, uh, a war going on. And uh, while there's no ground threat, there's certainly a, a threat from the air. Missile strikes, airstrikes um, uh, happen in Kiev as well as in other cities around around the country. They can, the Russians can clearly uh, send missiles, cruise missiles, others um, wherever they want. Uh, so there is it's not without risk, um, but uh, we have to measure the risks and benefits and the benefits of having our embassy in Kiev, I think, outweigh the risks. Um, it's that's the right calculation to do. And the, and the, the diplomatic security offices, uh, both in country and back in Washington, make these calculations every day and they make recommendations to the secretary of state. Um, and, uh, and so those decisions, um, I, I'm sure, are. And Secretary Blinken said, that, you know, that we've made. He, he, he said they're going to be back sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so they've clearly made those decisions that the benefits outweigh the costs. Let me uh, ask you something. I've asked a few other uh, folks who have a lot of experience in in Ukraine, and that is sort of these assessments about Putin and Zelensky. Was, was there an overestimation, underestimation of Putin pre-invasion and now and an overestimation, underestimation about Zelensky pre-invasion and now. So I was there uh, when President Zelensky was just barely in office. So, so I got I got back to Ukraine in uh, in June of, of 2019 when and he was inaugurated the month before. Um, so he was brand new in office. Um, I had good interactions with him <clears throat> for that summer, fall and, and into the winter of uh, 2020. Um, uh, and it was clear to me, and I think clear to the U.S. government, um, that that, that uh, this was a real leader. Uh, this was a, a a new politician. There's no doubt. Uh, you know, we know that he that was the, he was elected president of Ukraine um, without prior uh, political experience. Right. But it was very clear to me, and I think again to the to the rest of the government, um, that uh, he could mobilize. Ukrainian people. Um, he obviously won with 73% of the vote, got a landslide in a free and fair election. I observed that election the best um, from outside the government, uh, from here at the Institute of Peace. I was one of the international observers and observed both rounds of, uh, of the election in, that, that elected him and free and fair. And he clearly had the, uh, the support of the Ukrainian people. Um, and he had the right instincts, I thought. Um, um, and, I, and again, I think the U.S. government agreed with this. That is the instincts on wanting to, to end the war on Ukrainian terms um, and wanting to defeat the corruption the, that oligarchs um, imposed on, on his country, on, on Ukraine, on their country. Um, so I, I think there was an understanding of, of his potential. That said, um, when, when, the, when Putin invaded um, in in on, on 24th of February uh, this past year, in, in 2022, um, President Zelensky really stepped up. 
Um, and, you know, he, he showed courage. I mean, he was given the opportunity to leave Kiev in the face of this threat, ground threat uh, um, to the to the capital. And he said, no, thanks. Uh, he, he said, I'm staying. Uh, and that demonstrated to the Ukrainian people, but also to the world, um, that he's a strong, courageous leader and was able to lead that nation and indeed inspire the world. So so that part, you know, did did uh, impress um it probably impressed well i know it impressed a lot of ukrainians who had mm-hmm. been skeptical before um but now they are 100 percent 95 percent uh by polls um total support of their president even even by the way jared um i was i was in kiev and, and talked to president Zelensky and others um in january three weeks before the invasion and the op- I talked to several opposition leaders, and they, at the time, again before the invasion, were you know doing what opposition leaders do. They right. um, they point out the problems of the person in office. They're pointing out the problems of Zelensky. Um, but <clears throat> as soon as the Russians invaded, they fell in behind him enthusiastically, and that's where they are now. The opposition is totally supportive of, as as I say, the whole country is totally supportive of Zelensky. Um, it, and he represents the the nations well, the the citizens well. Um, and so all that. now, you you know the question about Putin. What Putin clearly underestimated was the strength and the determination and the fighting ability of the Ukrainian army. And he probably over he overestimated his his army's capabilities. Um, and uh, whether we over or underestimated him, um, I I don't know. Were you surprised that he uh, made the decision to, to move forward with the invasion? I was. Um, um, I thought that a rational person, even um, even a person like President Putin, whose whose calculations of costs and benefits are probably different than mine, uh, but nonetheless, I was very impressed at the at the severity of the sanctions that were going to come. And President Biden told President Putin of the sanctions that were going to come. And they're harsh. We, we know, we now know they're the harshest uh, sanctions imposed on any nation ever. Um, and I was impressed with that. I was also impressed at the uh, level of destruction that would come uh, both in Ukraine, but also to, to the Russian army if he were to invade. And the the danger th- that uh, an invasion might pose to his own to Putin's own regime. I mean, he was getting advice from senior military, senior retired military, but senior mm-hmm. military uh, saying, you know, Mr. President, don't do this because you could jeopardize stability in the nation, in the country. Uh, it's all to say that yes, I I uh, I I said there was a forty five percent chance that he would invade. But I also said that there's a 55 percent chance that he wouldn't. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I got that wrong. Last question. Um, is there a diplomatic resolution here that you see? When President Putin figures out, when he realizes, when he accepts that he's losing on the battlefield, and I believe he will lose on the battlefield sooner or later. I'm hoping it's sooner. But if it takes longer then the Ukrainians will fight. Um, Ukrainians will fight until they win. They've said this over and over, and I believe them. And as long as we can provide this support, this military support, economic support, financial support, but in particular military support, these weapons, 
as long as we provide them, then the Ukrainians will continue to fight until they win. And when it's clear to President Putin that he can't beat the Ukrainians, then he will look to try to sit down for some diplomatic agreement. And the Ukrainians um, have thought about this. Um, and so I think the answer uh, to your question is, is there a diplomatic solution to this? Um, only after the military solution. That is only after the Ukrainians defeat the Russians in their own country, um, in the Ukrainian country, um, will there be a diplomatic solution? Because it, only at that point will Putin and the Russians sit down. Ambassador, I appreciate your time, appreciate your insight, your expertise on this. We'll continue to have these conversations and um, hope for the best as, as this conflict continues to, to move forward. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Jared, thank you very much. Glad you're interested. Glad to do this anytime. One campaign refrain from Republicans this year, fire Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House who has led Democrats in the chamber since 2003, is in some ways on the ballot in about 435 House districts. And if at least 218 of those districts vote for a Republican, as polls suggest they will, and then some, then Pelosi would lose her job as Speaker. Kevin McCarthy, the top House Republican, is waiting for that job, and all indications are he will be next in line, even with that audio. Tension is too high. The country is too crazy. I do not want to look back and think we caused something or we missed something and someone got hurt. This week, the New York Times released that audio as part of reporting from two reporters' new book. It was recorded during a phone call of House Republican leaders on January 10th, 2021, just four days after the Capitol riot. McCarthy has heard singling out specific members like Florida's Matt Gates for his rhetoric. Well, he's putting people in jeopardy, and he, he doesn't need to be doing this. We, we saw what people would do in the Capitol, um, you know, and these people came prepared with, with rope, with everything else. Previously released recordings also revealed in that week, McCarthy told colleagues he thought then-President Trump should consider resigning. Now, a reminder, all of this was said in private meetings and in the days immediately following the riot and before the second impeachment of Trump. McCarthy met with every House Republican this week, a meeting that is a weekly occurrence and one that did not appear to show much strain within the conference nor diminish support for McCarthy. So is McCarthy still on the fast track to the speakership if those midterms turn out as polling suggests they will? We start there this week with my colleague covering Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. The best thing that happened to him is what didn't happen to him is that President Trump, former President Trump, did not undercut him. After the leak uh, of these audio tapes the past few days from The New York Times, text messages from Mark Meadows, there's been all sorts of stuff coming out the past couple of weeks here. And even though it appears that he was done with the former president, ditched him, uh, spoke frankly about some GOP members who he thought were being, uh, you know, incendiary rhetoric about the riot and needed to tamp them down. He seems to be in pretty good shape. Now, that can change very quickly if the former president changes his position. The thing that we've noticed about the former president is that even if you were against him at one point, sometimes he comes around to you so long as you're, you're with him. Uh, but it wouldn't take much 
for the former president maybe to uh, undercut Kevin McCarthy. One person even uh, said to me, just for the sake of creating chaos, maybe right at the right moment in late November, December, 1st of January, you know, they would vote on the floor uh, January 3rd. Uh, that's when the new Congress begins. Is Kevin McCarthy's entire speakership riding on the support of the former president? I mean, he's been in the House of Representatives, what, 20 years? Yeah, yeah, he was a freshman uh, in 2006. Uh, he was elected yeah. in 2006. Uh, but yes, in many respects. But it's also predicated on something else. It is if the Republicans win the size of that majority. Uh, how many votes can he lose? In order to be the successful speaker, you have to have an outright majority of mm -hmm. the entire House. So if it's 435 members, it's just not the person with the most votes winning. Yeah. You have to have 218. And sometimes the number of the House, like right now, it's 430. If for some reason we were to have a vote right now, you'd have to get 216. That's the that's the math. Mm -hmm. So if he has like a 30, 40 seat majority, he can probably lose some 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 votes. Here's the other factor that's going to be very important. Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio. And not a lot of people have talked about this, Jared. Jim Jordan used to be kind of the anti McCarthy. Mm -hmm. uh, he was opposed to McCarthy. He was opposed to some of the generally the Republican leadership. He kind of looked the other way a little bit with John Boehner from Ohio, just because at the point at that point, uh, John Boehner was was the speaker and he was from Ohio. Jordan's from Ohio. Jordan was a little more junior. But Jordan obviously was kind of a rabble rouser. You're going to have rabble rousers in that Republican conference. And it has been suggested to me that maybe Jim Jordan suddenly matriculates potentially to be the majority leader, because then that's the person, so long as Jordan is there kind of supporting McCarthy, he can put out all the fires with the conference. Now, what does that do for Steve Scalise, who's the whip, mm -hmm. who supposedly would, you know, rise up the, the you know, the, the ladder here, or at least Stefanik, uh, who's now the conference chair? Do they want a Republican uh, woman in the leadership there? And this raises the other question. Liz Cheney, has denied, who was in leadership at the time, leaking the tape. Steve Scalise has denied, you know, leaking the tape. Where is this leak coming from? That's a good and question, yeah. And just the fact, Jared, that this leak exists, that tells you that the knives are out for Kevin well, McCarthy. Let's talk a little bit about sort of what these tapes tell us about Kevin McCarthy, because Democrats have made a lot of hay to say, you know, listen, this is hypocritical and, and it's two-faced or whatever sort of adjective you want to use, right, that you had in the immediate aftermath of the attack, Kevin McCarthy essentially washing his hands of uh, the former president. In the earlier recording we heard, he said that he was going to suggest that uh, the president resign. Obviously, that's not a conversation they had. But it is clear that in these immediate days, uh, Kevin McCarthy didn't have much love lost here, not just for the former president, but for members of his own conference who he thought were instigating some of this rhetoric. That's right. That has, and, that has since changed, has it not? It changed very quickly, you know, because he went to Mar-a-Lago in late January and posed with the president. Now, what what changed? Was, was that a thing where Kevin McCarthy maybe went down there because he saw where his conference was? Mm -hmm. Frankly, these members were supporting the former president. They saw where their constituents were, believing that this was Antifa that came to the building and, and the election was stolen and that sort of thing. And was this McCarthy maybe at that moment saying, well, this is what I need to do, thinking that the president's flame was going to quickly burn out. There was going to be, you know, there, there was one line on one of these calls where like the Democrats are going to take care of this guy for us, meaning they're going to impeach him on the yeah, floor. Impeach, they may and they're going to send it move. to this. Yeah, you brought right. I mean, he was he was he was gone anyway, but that would be the damage. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've never had, you know, we've had two impeachment right, right. 
in the history of the republic prior to President Trump, and he got impeached twice. You know, I mean, it's it's just extraordinary. So they thought that was going to be it. And former presidents who lose, they usually don't have a lot of gravitas immediately with the party. Uh, that has not been the case with former President Trump. And people might have thought maybe that's where this was going to go. You know, there's another really multi-level chess element to this. I mentioned this chaos idea that, say, mm -hmm. at some point, late November, December, maybe right before the... Mm -hmm. The speaker vote, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, you know, January 3rd next year, the president. No, that's it. You know, I'm out, you know, not with Kevin McCarthy, vote for somebody else or whatever that, you know, to cause chaos. It's already and Democrats have highlighted this. It is already a pretty chaotic House Republican conference. It will probably be more chaotic next year because there's going to be pushes to try to impeach Biden, impeach uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, who's the mm -hmm. Homeland Security Secretary. I mean, pick your poison there. Now, I flag that because Kevin McCarthy, you know, and, and wise politicians do this. They, you know, kind of go where their people are going and then get in front. But then also the theory might be, you know, here's a guy who's been in leadership. He was the whip. He's been, you know, minority and majority leader. You know, he's on the precipice of becoming speaker. If you have the House devolve into chaos and it's somebody other than Kevin McCarthy, you know, maybe the Democrats might wish for the day that the Speaker of the House and maybe the country is Kevin McCarthy, because if you have, you know, something else, something that, that is a more extreme faction that is driving who becomes Speaker. And there's even been suggestions that and you could do this. Actually, you don't have to be a member of the House. Matt Gates has been pushing, you know, former President Trump to right. be Speaker of the House. That's never happened. And there's you know all sorts of other people that you might want somebody like Kevin McCarthy actually to be Speaker as onerous on its face, as that might seem, particularly in light of these tapes and the two facedness of what was said on the tapes in private and then what has been said in public. As we talk about and I know part of the, your reporting this week is also that um, the January 6th committee is going to consider renewing its request to talk to Kevin McCarthy. He has declined in, uh, an invitation to testify so far. He has said that his conversations with the former president, he has talked about publicly and that will suffice. Um, does this change that calculation? And it, it would be I mean, I was going to use the word extraordinary, but it would be unprecedented for this committee to subpoena Kevin McCarthy. Right. It's really hard to subpoena a sitting member of Congress. In other words, yeah. a, a committee you know, or, you know, or the House itself to subpoena uh, a sitting member. And here's the reason. It's a constitutional issue. The Constitution in Article one gives the House the right to discipline its own members. So if you have members who aren't willing to come talk about something and usually when you issue a subpoena in Congress, it's to somebody outside. It's to, you know, you know, somebody in the private sector, a whistleblower somebody with a, you know, an oil company, you know, it could be anything, you, you know, you, that, you know, baseball, we've had, you know, we've had, you name it, we've had it over the, over the years. The constitution says the house and Senate can discipline its own members. So if you have somebody you want to come in and you say, will you please come in and set for a deposition? And they say, no, well, what can you do? You could, well, you could always vote to hold them in contempt. That would be one way of doing it much like they've done Mm -hmm. non-members, like former member, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, did it to Steve Bannon as well. That's one thing. Or refer them to the Ethics Committee for discipline. Are they going to find them? Are they going to, you know, you know, expel you on the on the far end? You know, these are all, you know, punishments available under the Constitution. So to issue a subpoena, you know, I mean, even, I mean, even if for some reason that went to court, 
you know, you would say, you know, the judge would say, well, what gives here? You know, you okay. you have your so own that, right. So there's really nothing to take care of this. That's there's right. really nothing the committee can do to, to sort of force the issue here is, I guess, what I'm getting at. The only thing he, they can do to force the issue is to scream from the mountaintops. Right. And continue to say, oh, you see, and so doubt. And more tapes come out and more text mm-hmm. messages come out and say, you see what they all did here. And, and the people in the Republican conference who don't want Kevin McCarthy secretly kind of like some of this, you know, if it gets that bad. And then you get into the Trump theory that I posited earlier. You know, th- there's a, there's a lot, a lot to go here, you know, but but if you but if you continue maybe to ask that, you know, and, and let's say he does become speaker, then Republicans or Democrats in the minority next year would say, oh, you see, it's that it's that Kevin McCarthy and all that baggage and all he does is Trump's bidding and he's unethical and he said this, but then he said that and he's not even telling the truth. You can't trust him. You know, that's where that's the narrative that they would. That's the screaming from the mountaintops part. I'll finish with this just kind of to put a bow on it, because you're reporting this week is that uh, the uh, select committee anticipates uh, public hearings a little bit later now, maybe in, in June. We've heard this for a while. I was told at one point, you know, late winter, early yeah. spring, end but of March. It keeps moving later and later. Yeah, that's right. So here's what we're really thinking. Probably grand total about two weeks plus of hearings, five hearings on the low end, 10 hearings on the high end. Probably if they can get a blockbuster witness or two, mm-hmm. you know, does someone like Kevin McCarthy actually And I don't know. I wouldn't know the politics of this just yet. It hasn't, you know, this universe hasn't materialized. But somebody, be it McCarthy or somebody else who they want to talk to, say, you know, it actually serves my purpose to go in and talk. Okay, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I mean, there could be some reasons for people to to come and do that, or members of the Trump family, you know, Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump or something like that. All people who have been, you know, the the one six committee has wanted to talk to in in different forms and shapes. Uh, That would be what that would be, and they're going to be in prime time. Now, what they're kind of mirroring here when they have marked up subpoenas for some of these figures, the committee has already done most of those markups. A markup on Capitol Hill with a committee is different than a hearing, but it looks very similar. You just don't have witnesses. And all the members on the committee sat and talked and had, you know, five, 10 minutes apiece and talked. And the thing went about an hour, hour and a half, and they start 730 at night. So they've done some of this already. This would probably be a little higher level higher mm-hmm. caliber, and you could see where maybe TV networks have to make a decision. Are they going to take these things live or, or whatnot? And it probably hinges on who the witness of the day is. You know, I don't I don't know. That That's going to be very, very important as well. And the report then would have to come out certainly by the end of the year, because the, the likelihood is that if Republicans take control of, of the House, the January 6th committee will cease to exist. Absolutely. Uh, that they would get rid of that committee. And that's usually how it goes in the Congress, that there's mm-hmm. certain committees that one side has, you know, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have had committees that deal with climate change and the environment right. and things like that, uh, you know, and those have gone away under the Republicans and vice versa. When you have a Republican uh, House, it's the Education, the Workforce Committee. Uh, when the Democrats have control, it's the Education and Labor committee, you know, so you see right. the, you know, these these subtle differences here. Uh, and so it would probably expire. But to your question about the timing, do they want to get this out, you know, in the late summer, this report, a partial report just to get something out there? They're doing a pretty good job with this drip, drip, drip. You know, that's mm-hmm. one part of it. So, you know, maybe you don't need a full report or do you just put this out right before the election and you also also throw in an October surprise in there somewhere? You know, that some bombshell or do they just wrap this up and here we are 
dare I say it, Jared, at Christmas time, twenty third, twenty second, twenty fourth of uh, December, and there's some blockbuster report that comes out from the one six committee, and you know what I've said about that for we've, years. We've December been, we've been is there the before. worst. That's right. <laughs> so I will make my prediction, Jared. Merry Christmas. <laughs> You've said it before. Uh, chat program appreciated as always. Uh, have a great weekend. You too. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The Supreme Court has heard its final argument of this term, but there's still a lot of deciding to do. We'll look at what the next few weeks look like for the justices before Stephen Breyer says his goodbyes. And next week, a Republican primary in Ohio with major voices in the conservative movement split on the Senate race. Jessica Rosenthal will make sure you're ready for election night. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Washington.